Can we pray? Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for bringing us here this morning. Lord, we thank you for giving us your word, for speaking, for not being silent. Lord, we thank you for preparing our hearts even now to receive what you have to say to us through your word, by your Holy Spirit's work. Lord, we pray that you would enlighten our minds, give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Speak, O Lord. We pray in your name. Amen. I don't think that there's been a greater Broadway hit in recent years than the musical Hamilton. I mean, it's just been an incredible hit, hasn't it? Uh, raise your hand if you've actually been to see Hamilton. So a, a couple of you have. And uh, I haven't gotten to see it, but I've, gotten, I've, I've been able to listen to the soundtrack. Have any, of you, have any of you listened to the soundtrack of Hamilton? Okay, have you heard of the musical Hamilton? All right, good. So, so we all know who Alexander Hamilton is, or was, and this, uh, this Broadway musical is, is, is sort of telling his story, telling his life, and, and, and it's a tragic story, right? I mean, it's a, it's a story of, of his rise to power from, from the point of being an orphan to becoming a founding father of the United States of America. I mean, it's incredible. He's, on, he's in George Washington's cabinet. He's the first uh, president of the treasury, Alexander Hamilton. And, and, and the play does an incredible job of portraying this political intrigue that, that surrounds the first government of the United States and, and the conflict and the interpersonal conflict and the political conflict and, and, and the crazy things that happen. And, and as Hamilton is rising to prominence, he sings this song and he says, I am not giving away my shot. I'm not giving away my shot. And you get this feeling that this young uh, um, this young, courageous man is rising up in the ranks, that he is not going to give away his shot, that he is going to make something of himself. And it's ironic that in the play, the very thing that Alexander Hamilton does is throw away his shot, and it leads to, spoiler alert, I'm not going to say it. Go read the Wikipedia article. But the play is brilliant, and I haven't even seen it, I've only listened to it. But the play is brilliant for its use of rap and hip-hop, for its use of uh, intentionally uh, putting a diverse cast of characters into this old story, this old scene, to bring fresh life to this story. So that when we experience it, we, we see with fresh eyes. And, and the very last song of the play uh, is titled this, Who Lives? Who Dies? Who tells your story? Who lives? Who dies? Who tells your story? And it's sung by Eliza's wife. And at one point in the song, she says this. She says, You could have done so much more if you only had time. And when my time is up, have I done enough? 
I think one of the reasons this, this play has been so successful, the reason it has resonated with so many people, is that it asks this pressing question, have I done enough? Have I done enough to be the mom that I need to be? Have I done enough to be the father that I need to be? Have I done enough to be the, the pastor that I need to be, the, 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 the employee that I need to be, the boss that I need to be? Have I done enough to be the student that I need to be? Have I done enough to be the friend that I need to be? It's a question that presses into our souls. Have I done enough? Who lives? Who dies? Who tells your story? Who tells your story? I want you to think about that. Who tells your story? Those of you that use social media, which I know is only a couple of you, um, will probably know that there's been a shift in social media in the last few years away from posting things that just sort of sit there to telling your story. Facebook's even picked up on that language of, of your story. Now you have an option. You can post it to the news feed or you can post it to your story. Who's telling your story? Is it your bank account? Is it your romance? Is it your family? Is it your boss? Is it your successes? Is it your failures? Is it your physical appearance? Is it your mood? Is it your achievements? Who tells your story? The question that this scripture begs and asks us to ask, who tells your story? And as we enter into this story, as we enter into this story about Hannah, we kind of have to zoom back and think about where is Israel? What is Israel's story at this time? As you know, Israel had been given a promise by God to Abraham that they would have a land, that they would be a blessing, that all nations in the world would be blessed through them. Does that sound familiar? Okay, and so that was the promise. And now that promise, which seemed like it had sort of been defeated by the Egyptians through 400 years of slavery, God raised up a character named Moses who delivered Israel out of Egypt, and now they've gone through 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. They've gone into the land that God promised, and God gave them the land. They drove out the inhabitants of the land, and God gave them the land through this miraculous entry into the promised land. But then things started going south pretty quickly, right? Even though God gave them the land and they took possession of it and they settled there, they, they failed to drive out all of the inhabitants as God had commanded. And so there were left those who were a thorn in their side. There were left those who taught them to worship other gods besides the Lord. They forgot the gracious law that God had given them of how they could direct their lives, how they could live. And so they were given over to the spiral of disappointment and rebellion and God would raise up judges who would lead them militarily against their enemies and then 
They would do okay, and then they would fall even further than they had before. And throughout this time, the Scripture says, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Do you remember that? The very last verse of Judges, it says, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That is where the story of Elkanah and his polygamous marriage and Hannah comes about. It takes place during the time when everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And Israel had fallen far. They had really fallen far. And so we've seen where Israel's story is taking place, and now we're brought into Hannah's story. So look with me at verse 4 on your insert or in your copy of the Scriptures. Verse 4 reads, On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Peninnah, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival, that's Peninnah, used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore, Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? Why do you not eat? Why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? He's clueless, right? <laughs> I love that. Okay. Hannah is unhappy, y'all. She is, she, is, she is not feeling well. She is feeling unfulfilled. She is full of grief. Why? Why is Hannah unhappy? What's the obvious? She's barren, right? She, doesn't, she can't have children. She so desires to have children, but she's unable. And what we have to understand about having children in those days is that children were, were vital to your place in the community. Having children was, was, was like having security because your children were the ones who were going to take care of you. You didn't have a welfare system. It was your children who took care of you. They were a symbol of your wealth and your status in the community. And if you had no children, then you were, then you were ashamed. You were, you were, you were pushed out. Even more so than today. I mean, it's true to some degree today, isn't it? But even more so then. She was barren. She was looked down upon when she uh, walked around the the, the social circles of her life. uh, She was whispered about, something must be wrong with her. What's wrong with Hannah? She heard all of the whispers. And so she wept. She was full of grief. But there's more to her grief, isn't there? I mean, she was barren, but also she's in a bigamous relationship. She, she's, she's living in a marriage where she has a husband, right? She has a husband who loves her, but she's sharing him with this other woman, right? And, and, and most likely, uh, scholars tell us that the reason she was in a, 
a, a polygamous marriage is because she was barren. Because she couldn't have children, and so her husband went out and found another wife who was fertile. He went out and found another wife who gave him sons and daughters, plural. Polygamy was not the way God intended for humanity to be in relationship with one another. And we see time and time again when, when, when God's people fall in with the cultural norm, which in those days was polygamy, and how it brought pain and suffering and, and torture and torment into her life. And don't we see that here? We see that with, with how Peninnah treats Hannah. She's, she's bullying her. Every chance she gets, she's saying, Oh, Hannah, would you ask one of your kids? Oh, never mind. You don't have kids, do you? Oh, let me get one of my kids to do it. Can you see that happening? Year after year, being bullied by Panenna. She's barren. She's in a bigamous relationship. She's bullied. Hannah's suffering is real. Her grief is real. Her relationships are not working. And so how does she respond? How could she respond? Well, the, the passage gives us two, uh, two voices that speak into her life. Two options for how she might respond. And the first one, the first voice I'm going to mention is her husband, Elkanah. That's the, that's the obvious one, right? He, he comes to her in verse 8, and he says to her, Hannah, why do you weep? Why do you not eat? Why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? Do you know what he's referring to with the ten sons? Think about your history. Think about the patriarchs. Think about Jacob, who took a wife who was barren, Rachel. And while Rachel was barren, he took another wife, or he had another wife, and she gave him some sons, and then he took her servant, Bilhah, and then he took the other servant, and, and, he, and he amassed how many sons? Ten sons. Right? Ten sons before Rachel was able to have her two. Am I not better to you than ten sons? Do you see what's happening here? Elkanah comes to her and he says, Look, I know you don't have children, but I love you the most. The only reason I put up with Penenna is because she's the baby maker. Okay? That's the, that's the only reason that I put up with her. See, Elkanah is playing favorites. He's saying, you're the one I really love. You have my love. You may not have children, but you have me. And so Hannah could have responded by gloating. By gloating in Elkanah's love for her. She could have gone back to Peninnah that day and said, hey, you know what? You may have kids, but he likes me the best. He told me so. He said he loves me the most. You may have kids, but we have some romance. She could have gloated in Elkanah's love. She could have looked to her husband's love to bring her fulfillment, to bring her happiness, to get revenge on Peninnah who had treated her so poorly. 
She could have gloated. Another thing she could have done is she could have gained a child by any means necessary. She could have taken cues from Rachel and given her husband, her servant, to to, to bear children for her, that they could be her children. She could have gained a child by any means necessary. And honestly, when we first read Hannah's prayer, which we read earlier, when we first read it, I mean, it seems like she's bargaining with God, doesn't it? It seems like she's coming in there and saying, God, you know what? I really want a child, and if you'll just give me a child, I'll do anything. I swear, I'll do anything. He'll go into the ministry, okay, anything, which is crazy. Don't do that, okay? Don't bargain with God. What does Hannah want? What does she want for Hannah? Hannah wants children who will love her, who will give her hugs and kisses and who will provide meaning to her life. Who she can raise up and watch them grow and and, and do wonderful things. I mean, Hannah wants to be a mom. She wants to experience the joy of motherhood. And so she could have gone about that to gain a child by any means necessary. She wanted to fit in at the women's ministry. Around the well or wherever they hung out. Because as it was, she didn't fit in. She must have been tempted to have a child to fulfill her desires. But how does she respond? Look with me at verse 9. And after they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, they had given their sacrifice, a fellowship offering. And so they ate a portion of the offering. They had eaten and drunk in Shiloh. Hannah rose... Now Eli, the priest, was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord, which, by the way, is, is the tabernacle, which they had put some structure around, so it was more like a building at this point. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall touch his head. No razor shall touch his head. Do you know what that's referring to? It's, it's the Nazarite vow. It involves, involves all these things that are basically a way for people to devote themselves to the Lord fully. In verse 12, as she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. (laughs) What's going on? Verse 13, Hannah was speaking in her heart, only her lips moved, but her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli took her to be a drunken woman. Rather than gloating in Elkanah's love for her, rather than gaining a child by any means necessary, Hannah gives her desire to the Lord. She gives her desire to the Lord. And we know it's, it's, it's so emotional that, that she appears to be drunk. She's so in, immersed in her prayer. Her heart is being poured out. And isn't it interesting that things were so bad in those days that, that Eli like, didn't recognize prayer? <laughs> it's like, you must be drunk or something. 
No, I'm praying. (laughs) These were dark times. Eli's own sons were robbing the temple. They were raping women. Dark times. And Hannah rises and goes to the the foot of the the tabernacle, the temple, and, and, and pours out her heart. And it's unrecognizable to the religious leader of the day. It's unrecognizable. She's giving her desires to the Lord. She's not seeking selfishness, but she prays for this son to be devoted to the Lord. A son, not for me, but a son for you. A son for you, God, not for me. Oh, I want a son so bad, but not for me. A son for you. Change my desires. Change my heart, Hannah prays. And she's sobbing and weeping because it's real. Maybe she remembers Sarah, Abraham's wife. Maybe she remembers Rebecca. Maybe she remembers Rachel. Maybe she remembers what God might do with a barren woman. And so she has a little bit of faith. Hannah's name means woman of grace. Woman of grace. She's asking for God's favor. She's asking for God's mercy and His grace. She can't do it on her own. She's looking to God to give her what she cannot get herself, what she will not get by any means necessary. She calls out to the Lord. And so what is the result? What is the result of Hannah's prayer? Look with me at verse 17. Then Eli answered, after he realized she wasn't drunk, Go in peace. And the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. And she said, Let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went her way and ate. And her face was no longer sad. Did she get what she wanted? It's a good question, isn't it? Did she get what she wanted? Yes, she did. She gave her desires to God, and that's what she wanted. That's what she really wanted. What she thought was a desire for a child was really a desire for God's grace. It was a desire to pour her heart out before God. And she went away able to eat again. She went away with her face not sad, but but full of joy. God transformed her in that moment. Through her pouring out, she'd given over her desires to God. Isn't Hannah amazing? I mean, I think that's kind of how we feel right now, right? Like, I could never do that. You know, I could never do that. I could never be as amazing as Hannah. Amazing Hannah. It's what we're tempted to think at this point in the story, right? We're tempted to say, oh, how amazing Hannah is. I could never be like her. But if we think that, we have completely missed the point. We have completely missed the point that Hannah isn't amazing. We missed the thing that she recognized. And what was it? That this story is not my story. This is God's story. This is about God's story of grace. That's what she realized. That's what she put her life into. 
the, the amazing story of God's grace. Not of how great Hannah is. And how we measure up to Hannah. <laughs> you know? Go think about that. How do you measure up to Hannah? No, that's not it. It's how amazing is God's grace. How amazing is His story. We were talking about this at home this week, Laurie and I. And Laurie gave me a, an awesome illustration. So I'm going to share it with you. And when you think about your grandmother and her cross-stitching, if she cross-stitched, if she didn't, then I'm sorry. But if you take a cross-stitch and you turn it around and look at the back, it looks like a tangled web of ugliness, right? I mean, look at it. It's got strings hanging this way and that. It's got blotchy patterns over here and blotchy patterns over here, and everything just looks a disarray. You look at the back of a cross stitch, and it's, and it's chaos. But when you turn it around, you see the picture that was being crafted through all the chaos on the back. God is putting together the tangled mess of Hannah's life. He's putting together Israel's spiraling rebellion and he's he's stitching it into a story that he's writing. And it's a story of his majesty and of his glory. It's a story of his grace. It's God's story. Did you notice those words back in verses 5 and 6 that was repeated? The Lord had closed her womb. The Lord had closed her womb. You see, her infertility was no accident. It was no accident. God, the messiness of the backside of that story, had written it in. Because God uses the weak. Because God displays his power and his glory through people who have screwed up lives like us. God's tendency is to make our total inability his starting point. Says Dale Ralph Davis. God's tendency is to make our total inability his starting point. As the Apostle Paul wrote, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God is moving history. And yet it's cheesy, but it's his story. (laughs) Right? It's his story. God is moving history toward the fulfillment of an ancient promise. An ancient promise that was revealed to our first parents in that garden when God said, I will put enmity between you and the woman as he's speaking to the devil. I will put enmity between you and the woman. You will bruise, you will, between your offspring and her offspring, he will bruise your head and you will strike his heel. God is writing a story where he's, he's raising up this, 
Savior, this, this rescuer, this king who is coming. This king who is going to make everything right. Who is going to bring righteousness and justice and truth and mercy and kindness and compassion. This good king who was to come. And so Hannah goes back home and God remembers her. She gives birth to a son and she names him. I asked the Lord, Samuel. And then she brings Samuel to serve the Lord at his tent. Samuel becomes a great prophet. Samuel becomes a judge. Samuel becomes Samuel is a forerunner to King David. And many, many years later, another barren woman named Elizabeth in her old age would give birth to a son named John. And he would be the forerunner of another great king, of the great king. The, the, the life that... that Hannah and Samuel point forward to is the life of King Jesus who was born into this world to undergo the suffering and the pain and the the difficulty of loss, to be a suffering servant, uh, to not have everything handed to him on a silver platter, but to struggle in life through poverty, through rejection even of his own family. And yet, being tempted in every way, he never fell into the, the rebellion of his parents. He never fell into the rebellion of his people, Israel. Jesus lived what Israel never lived. Jesus lived what you and I never lived. And God gave him to us as the demonstration of his grace. So that through him, through Jesus, you and I could receive Hannah. Could receive grace upon grace that we could be forgiven, that we could have our loves and our our desires redirected so that we could see that life is not only about the tangled mess, but it's about what God's doing, what God's going to do, the beautiful picture that He's creating. So who is telling our story? Who is telling your story? Let's read the last couple of verses in our passage, beginning at verse 26. And Hannah said, Oh, my Lord, she's talking to Eli. Oh, my Lord, as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who was standing here in your presence praying to the Lord who you thought was drunk. No, she didn't say that. In verse 27, For this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him. Therefore, I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord And he worshipped the Lord there. Who is telling Hannah's story? She's letting God tell her story. She's letting God tell her story. She hasn't gained anything. She's still got to go back to the women's ministry without a child. She's still got to go back to a husband whose devotion is tainted. But Hannah says, I am the woman 
I am the woman whose story God is writing. She is happy in her salvation. She is happy in her relationship with God. So will you ask, will I ask God to write our story? Maybe it's time, maybe it's time, maybe it's time to rise up like Hannah. To, to, to get up and, and to come before the Lord's presence. And to, to cry out to Him. To be honest with Him. To, to pour out your soul before Him. These are my desires and they're not being met, God. They're not being met. Would you meet them in, in you? Would, you? would you change my desires? Would you give me, give me you? Maybe it's time to tell Him your grief. Maybe it's time to give up control that we think we have. To let God tell our story. Let's pray together. Gracious Lord, thank you for this story. Thank you for the, um, the way that you so clearly take a tangled mess and you, and you work it toward good. You work it toward the salvation of Israel and the salvation of, of mankind. Through Jesus, you bring Jesus out of this mess. And God, we thank you that we can entrust our lives to you through Jesus, that we can be covered with his goodness and his righteousness that your grace allows and gives us. We know who lives. Jesus lives. We know who died. Jesus died. And we know who tells our story. Lord, would you make it so in our lives, we pray in your name. Amen.